Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to yet another sterling episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. I'm feeling like really like positive and creative and all that kind of stuff right now today, Aaron. How about you? Because it's Friday. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, it's a different vibe, I think, when we record on on Friday. It's I can see the weekend. vibe in the middle of the day as well. I'm I'm uh-huh. seeing that. But yeah. yes, I'm I'm feeling the weekend is coming. I have a ton of work. This is crazy work time of year for me. So Fridays, I'm always just looking at, so how much of this will leak into my weekend? So I'm mm-hmm. hoping not a lot. Yeah, yeah. But I, hear you. Friday. I hear you. So you yeah. had quite an experience last night. You've been living in Mount Pleasant now for, what, six months? Yeah, I guess we're coming up on six months pretty soon. Five, anyway. Yeah. Okay, so five months, and you have kind of had to restart in-person community for yourself. You've... Yeah. Had a lot of virtual time over the last few years and through COVID. Now you're in a new place. COVID is not a problem. And so last night, what did you do? Well, by gosh, we had the very first meeting of the Samson Society in Columbia, Tennessee, which is down the road from me. It's the, the largest town here in proximity to Mount Pleasant. And, uh, you know, it was terrific. It was uh, me and a dozen other guys in a barbershop. Uh, nice. Did you yeah. sit in the barber chairs? No, 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 no. Uh, he has kind of a, a, got a little lounge sitting off to the side. He actually has a, a, a kegerator there with beer on tap, which he we did not take advantage of, although it was offered to us. Um, yeah, and then, you know, with a dozen, 13 people, we really needed to count off, uh, you know, for sharing time. But it was a very pleasant evening. And, you know, outside and a couple doors down in front of Mealtown Coffee was was a vacant picnic table. So, you know, my sharing group went outside. Topic was father. Um, It was first meeting for a couple of guys. We actually had uh, four guys from another group who came to help us launch. Nice. That was nice. Yeah, they came down from Spring Hill. And uh, it was terrific. And then partway through it, it dawned on me, I'm going to be out of town the next four Thursdays. Oh, my God. This is a Thursday night meeting. So, uh, and of course, you know, in my egotism, I imagine that there's no way in the world that the group can possibly function without me. And, you know, the timing's all wrong. Anyway, we have a meeting after the meeting at uh, a Mexican place. Everybody goes, virtually everybody. We had a great time. I break the news to these poor guys that I'm not going to be around for a month. And nobody is phased in the least. Like, <laughs> Bastards. It's like, uh, yeah, yeah. it'll be great. We'll be here when you get back. Nice. So, uh, well, that's, that was a uh, nice that's, night. that's twofold what you needed to hear, but you did yeah. need to hear. We'll be here when you get back. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. that is, that is so great. I am excited about that. And uh, maybe one of these times I'll have to, figure out a reason to make a trek down yeah. there. Yeah. The yeah. Come on over. Hey, sometime in the next month, you know, come and hang while I'm gone. That'd be awesome. Well, I'd like to be there when you're there. Okay. All right. Well, I get that we'll, too. We'll but who see. Would, I mean, come on. But I, 
I do like if uh, that the Mule Town coffee. That so it's right. The barbershop is near the square, right? Because Mule Town is on, on the square. square. Yeah, it's on okay. the square. Yeah, Daniel's nice. barbershop on the square, right there in the corner next to Mule Town Coffee. Very cool. Well, Columbia's got a nice little square, nice little Puckett's still going. It sure, absolutely. We would have gone to Puckett's, except uh, you know we wound up by about eight thirty, eight thirty-five. We went a little bit long. And Puckett's on Thursday night closes at nine o'clock. It just we couldn't do it. So that's just that's just wrong. Well, I'm is, excited yeah. about our guest today. Uh, Justin uh, reached out to someone that he's been listening to uh, their podcast and has been enjoying it, and just saw all kinds of pirate potential in this lady. So, yeah. looking forward to this interview. And I think uh, we should just get to it. I think that's a great idea. All right. Uh, yeah, you will meet her when we return on the Pirate Mom Podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Aaron, uh, somehow, I don't know whether you've done it, Justin's done it, somebody has actually reached out and made contact with none other than Andrea Ashley. She's on the show today. Thank God you said it right. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to Andrea. Andrea. <laughs> okay. Had no. you ever met an Andrew? <laughs> no. no, I have I not. Have I have not. not. Exactly. No. Yeah, 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 We're yeah. on your side. We're on your side. So, uh, so Andrea is the host of the Adult Child Podcast, and uh, I, I just, I, Aaron, why don't you take the lead on this conversation? Well, well first, well, I want to warn our listeners that <laughs> that Andrea will not. Oh, I'm, I'm oh, oh. nice knowing you, buddy. It's nice knowing you. I, I just, <laughs> I just up the uh, Andrea to Andrea. Come on, oh. that's that's got pretense level fifty on it. Uh, I'm riled up now. Nice. You got me going. Well, I, riled up you is great, but I have, think recorded. It's like not showing like sound wavies on my bar. Yeah, you are we're seeing them here. We're okay, seeing. Okay. you're cool. So I, I, I real quick want you to tell the story you just told because sometimes you use uh, language that is beautifully colored. Uh, yes. And there was someone that was listening to your podcast that was confused mm -hmm. because it seemed to have a rating that indicated you would be a sweet Yeah, girl. church girl. Let's read this mm -hmm. thing. First, I just want to say I've always wanted to start a 12-step meeting where everyone is forced to speak in a pirate accent the whole time. <laughs> I've had that idea. Wouldn't that be fun? Have you, have you ever switched your Facebook page to pirate language? No. Oh, you can do that. Yeah, it's one of oh. the language uh, selections. Anyway. Don't tell me with a good time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I would. Wouldn't that be fun? Like a themed meeting? The That'd be <laughs> awesome, yeah. Um, okay, so this is what they said. Good foundation, dot, dot, dot. But I found the rough language hindering and distracting. The rating said E, which means for everyone. Yet rough language constantly peppered the show. So Rufus the pig, that's their name. Uh, it stands for explicit. <laughs> so any of our listeners that don't know, E does not mean for everyone. 
Yeah. And uh, so it means we like to say fuck around here. That's what it means. (laughs) Well, there you go. So one of the most interesting things when you're telling your story comes Mm -hmm. out at the beginning. Rehab at 14, sober by 19. The percentage of people that have those two things in their addiction resume has to be, oh, it might just be you and Drew Barrymore, really. So you went through a lot early on. We talk a lot about the difference between sobriety and recovery here, and you Mm. experienced sobriety while not really feeling the joy of recovery happening for a while. So you kind I of would had say a- I did. I would say I did. It just whenever I was in a relationship, I did not. Yes. So we're going to get to that. Ah. But let us start with what in the hell is an adult child? Mm. So um, everyone. <laughs> for everyone. Yes. E for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I should make a post about that. So. And so the term adult child was initially coined in the late 70s, early 80s, and it was initially adult children of alcoholics. Mm-hmm. So basically, this group, this I think the story is pretty interesting. So it was a group of teenagers who were in Alateen, and they graduated and went into Al Anon. And what they realized was that they couldn't really relate to what was being discussed in these meetings and that it was primarily Mm -hmm. focused on, you know, my spouse is, you know, an alcoholic or my child is an alcoholic. And these were people who had just survived growing up in an alcoholic home. And now we're trying to deal with that impact. Mm -hmm. And so they started their own, I think initially it was an an Al-Anon meeting, but it was like called, you know, specific for adult children of alcoholics and what they found was that there were, despite what their upbringings looked like, that there were certain characteristics that were common amongst them. Um, and initially they, and then eventually they started their own 12-step meeting. Um, and it, it was about 10 years later. So this was right at the same time, though, that medical, the medical professionals and the mental health community was starting to see that um see alcoholism as a family disease and mm-hmm. see that it could impact people like on children that grew up and, and impact them for the rest of their life. So around the same time that this group was formed, uh, Dr. Janet Wotitz, who was an American psychologist, she wrote the first book, Adult Children of Alcoholics. Um, very similar. She saw, saw very similar traits too between what the group ACA had found and like what she saw as far as the commonalities. And we can definitely discuss that. But then it was about 10 years after she wrote that book, she did a revised version because what she realized was that there were other types of dysfunctional family systems that could also produce an adult child. And so Mm -hmm. now the term is adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families And basically what it is, is, you know, it's somebody whose unresolved childhood pain emerges and plays out in adulthood. It is somebody who responds to life with self-doubt, self-blame, or a sense of being wrong or inferior, all as a result of their childhood programming. So let's let that lead you back to your family story leading up to you going to rehab at 14 years old. So... You know, part of, I always knew that my childhood was less than ideal. 
But I also knew that like others had had it a lot worse. You know, mm-hmm. I was never physically or sexually abused. Um, you know, we were like well off and, you know, I went to private school. We belonged to the country club. We went on fun vacations. Um, but so at the age of seven, I found out that my mom was an alcoholic. So I'm an only child. So we were out to dinner and me and my mom were there. We were waiting for my dad was coming from work. And so my mom had ordered a beer and I could tell that something was wrong and she was like barely touching it. And then as soon as my dad got there, like tears started rolling down her eyes and I could tell that something was off. And then at some point she took me to the bathroom and I can like still very vividly like see it like right outside of the bathroom. There were like kind of these big kegs. And I just remember like standing there like next to these kegs with my mom and being like, what's wrong? And she was like, I'm an alcoholic. And obviously I'm seven. I don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, what does that mean? And she goes, "Uh, it means I can't drink. And it was like from that night forward, it was like, I didn't know what that meant, but I knew exactly what that meant. And it was like, I went to bed that night and I woke up the next morning as it like skipping several stages of development. And I developed this sixth sense when it came to my mom's drinking and I could feel it in my body like hours before she would actually drink. Mm -hmm. And so my dad traveled a lot for work. And so the time that my mom drank the most was when he was out of town and he knew this and he knew that she was driving me around drunk. And when he was in town, I was his like, it was like he was Sherlock and I was Watson. Like Mm -hmm. my mom's drinking was a secret from the rest of the world. So he used me as his emotional support and confidant. And he would have me search the house for booze with her. Or I have this very vivid memory of going into the liquor cabinet and taking a paint stick and using a pen to mark off the levels of each bottle. Wow, and this is is at like eight, nine years old. Mm -hmm. And was he explicit when he would talk to you about her drinking? Mm Mm-hmm. It was so like, what? yeah, it was like he was talking and I found it all very exciting, <clears throat> exciting, you know, sure. that's sure. how I, I think that's how I dealt with the fear, you know, but like, I found it all to be very exciting. And, um, I would sit on the step. They, they would only fight about alcohol or money. And so I just remember being a little girl and just sitting on the steps and getting like an adrenaline rush from listening to them fight. And it was like, I needed to hear every word that they were saying, because I think that that made me feel safe. And so how that has played out in adulthood is that I'm nosy as fuck. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's interesting though, because I mean, it's showing this, this coping mechanism that your tiny little brain is trying to figure out how to stay safe. And it's also the emerging of the same stuff in you. That's going to drive you towards alcohol and looking for that rush. So I even did remember, you... I even remember there would be times, and this was very rare. I mean, usually my sixth sense was spot on, but there was a few times where I sensed that something was going to happen and I would actually be bummed out when it didn't. Uh-huh. And mm. so I realized that my first addiction was to the chaos within my home. And that's an, that's a, a trait of adult children is we become addicted to excitement. Initially they wanted mm. to have it be fear, but they change it to excitement. But I realized that that was um, that, so I then developed, I guess it was around nine is when I started to show signs of separation anxiety. 
And so I, I woke up in the middle of the night one night and my dad was home too. And I was just like, I felt like I was going to die if I didn't sleep in my mom's bed. Like I, I, it, I just, I literally felt like my life was like, at, you know, and none of it was rational or anything. And so it started this pattern where I would w- fall asleep in my mom's bed or m- in my bed. And then in the middle of the night, I would go and switch places with my dad. I would just like go and tap him on the shoulder. And, and what I realized now is like, there was a couple of instances. I remember the first time it ever happened. So when my dad was out of town, I would go and sleep with my mom in her bed when I'd wake up in the middle of the night to pee. And it would be like, kind of like a sleepover. Like I thought it was fun. And I remember this one night in particular, I wake up, I go into her room, the lights are on and she's not in her bed. And just like the terror that I felt. Oh, yeah. And I walked uh-huh. downstairs and she had passed out on the couch. Mm-hmm. And I just remember like sobbing hysterically, like having to help her get up the stairs, you know, and into her bed. And so obviously those are connected. But so my parents then sent me to a therapist to like deal with this separation anxiety. And I remember asking my mom years later, like, did you ever tell that therapist that you were an alcoholic and that you and dad fought all the time? And her response was, no, it didn't seem relevant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, so I became already... the identified patient right then and there. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're you're becoming the scapegoat to focus their energy on. You are also developing a need to always have someone close and things in a relationship other people would be averse to. You're feeling disappointed if that chaos isn't there. I'm sure none of this will come back up in your no, story later. No. So when did you start not. drinking that, that caused at 12? So how did that start after you've seen all this stuff? And what what was what happened? You know, it's interesting. I, I, I never, some kids are like, I'll never drink. I was, I wasn't like, I would never drink, but I was like, I'll never be like my mom. But, mm-hmm. um, so I, I'm five eleven, and I was this height at 13. So what I like to say is like, thank God I started smoking at 12 or I would have been seven foot one. <laughs> <laughs> but so I was always mature. Like, obviously I had to, I was forced to grow up at study. So I I was a little bit more mature and I looked older and I don't know. I just, I just remembered thinking like drinking is cool. And I, I would tell, I remember when I was in the sixth grade before I started drinking, I remember telling the eighth grade boys that I smoked pot and drank because I thought it was cool. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, so I just started, I just started drinking and, um, you know, stealing it from houses that I would babysit at by that point. And so my mom finally entered like an outpatient rehab when I was in the sixth grade, that was the first time that she sought treatment. Um, and yeah, so I just started drinking whenever I had the opportunity to, and then like the real, I think the real pivotal shift or turning point was like in the seventh grade when, um, I became like the school slut at my school and I essentially like overnight became the girl that no one wanted to be friends with and no one was allowed to be friends with. Oh, and wow. I really, you know, John Bradshaw talks about that and healing the shame that binds you that like once that was the moment when shame really became my identity and it was already in the mm-hmm. making, right. By like getting forced to go to the therapist, like clearly it's, it's already happening, but right, that right, was right. the real like nail in the coffin for me. And, and so, and so they talks about, you know, he says, you can either go one of two ways. You can either go 
shameless acting in, which is where you do everything to avoid shame at any possibility. You go the perfectionistic route or you go shameful acting out where you act in ways that align with the shame and just produce more of it. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the road I went, you know? And so, yeah. And so then it was, that's when beginning of eighth grade is when I started smoking pot every day. And, um, and then I, I got kicked out of that private school at the end of seventh grade. That was just such a, a horrible year. Um, mm-hmm. So traumatic. And um, yeah. And so then in the eighth grade, I, I, I came home one night drunk and I told my mom that I smoked pot every day. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got sent to rehab for the first time um, four days after my 14th birthday. Huh? Wow. Said about that or did you feel like? Yeah, I was scared that's- to fucking death. Uh-huh. Mind you, I, it wasn't, I, I couldn't spend the night away from home until I was in the sixth grade. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I so you were scared. Terrified. Were you angry? Were you angry as well? No. Okay. So you weren't feeling like your parents were betraying you in this because you've already seen this process with your mom and it's kind of part of the course. No. And you know what happened is that once I started acting out, they got their shit together. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. You know, I acted out for the next you know, from the, from the age of 12 to 19 is when I acted out and my mom stopped drinking as much and my parents stopped fighting because wow. they had to you're, come together to deal with me. You know, you're welcome mom and dad. Exactly. <laughs> come on. So, yeah, I mean, then, then the next, you know, the next years were just in and out of, um, outpatient rehabs, boarding schools, all that stuff. And then I would say like 16 is like when I really became a pickle, you know, the expression like alcoholics are pickle. Once a cucumber becomes a pickle, it can never go back to being a cucumber ever again. And that really happened for me at 16. And and that's when I became like a daily drinker. And I just, I am the alcoholic that has a severe personality change for the worst. Like I just suck to be around. And this is my favorite story to tell, which I think really like paints the picture beautifully. So it was my senior year in high school and I was invited to this birthday party. And so initially I was, I was told that if I wanted to come, I could, I couldn't drink at all because of some like recent incidences where I had just like, I just caused scenes. Like I was just like loud and obnoxious and sloppy. And so they're like, if you want to come, you just can't drink. Well, I was able to negotiate to beer only. <laughs> uh-huh. So I drank a bottle. My, I remember my parents were in Canada. I was supposed to be staying at my boyfriend's house. So I drank a bottle of wine by myself before I went thinking like that, that would, you know, kickstart my buzz enough to Pre-loading, have beer yeah. only okay. suffice. And um, went to the party fully intending to drink beer only. Uh, got into the liquor not long after that, got kicked out of the party not long after that. Two people drove me home and dropped me off at my house. Well, what did I do? Well, I called a taxi and Mm. I had that taxi take me right back to the party. And when my rearrival was not like warmly welcomed, well, I made quite a scene I created quite a lot of noise, causing the neighbors to call the police, and everyone at the party got arrested for underage drinking. Party oh. animal! Uh-huh. <laughs> I, yeah. That, I was that oh. girl. That girl. Okay. And after that, 
and you had to go back and you know go to school with these people. They were what, older. What did, they were oh, they older. Were, they didn't. Go, they were. I was a senior, and they were out. My boyfriend was two years older, and they were older. But so then, so then at that point, so I had made him my world, like my boyfriend. I had kind of like ditched all my friends several years prior for just him. And so at that point, he he would only hang out with me like on Sundays and maybe like one day a week. And he would hang out with this other group of people. And so I'm trying to make new friends, but like, I, it doesn't, it doesn't take people very long to like realize that I'm not somebody that you want to be friends with, you know, like Mm -hmm. it. And so, yeah. And so I would try to make friends, but it would only take them like a couple of times of hanging out with me before they would, you know, be done with me. And so I would just sit, I had a fake ID and I would, it wouldn't work in liquor stores. I grew up outside of Philly. And so like they would sell beer, like in smaller quantities at like pizza places and like Chinese restaurants and stuff. So I would go mm-hmm. and I would get forties of steel reserve. Cause that had the highest alcohol content. So here uh-huh. I am like Andrea, like, you know, living in this, you know, the affluent suburbs of, of Philadelphia sitting by myself on a Friday night, just drinking forties of steel reserve. And, um, so take us to take us to age 19 where something Well so then I went off happens. so the whole time I was you know I would sit there and I would drink by myself and I was like you know what next year like once I go to college everything's going to be different. Mm-hmm. I really believed that this like incident that had happened in the 7th grade had just like tarnished me and I just needed a fresh start. You know? And so I went off to college and at that point I was drinking around the clock. And um and guess what nothing was different. You know? Yeah. People didn't want to hang out with me. I still cause scenes. And so I lasted six weeks, you know, and, and that was when I went into, I had like my first, went into a delirium tremens for the first time. And oh, wow. Um, wow. I ended up leaving Tallahassee. I went to Florida State. And when I tell people I lasted six weeks at Florida State, they're like, oh yeah, party school. I'm like, no, I was just fucking sitting in my dorm and drinking alone. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so then I, so then I, I left school and I um, went back into rehab and I, I got sober. I came to live here in Jacksonville where my parents had lived. And then, you know, I had about six months and then I started dating this guy, which is always like a great idea, right? Like in your first. (laughs) Yeah. That's the first recommendation. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So then he decided that he wanted to date this other girl. And like, I knew that I was going to have to see them at a meeting that night. And I knew that there was clonopin in the house. It was my mom's. And so I was like, the only way I can go to this meeting and face them is like, if I take a pill. So like, I took a pill, I go to the meeting. I remember Googling when I got home is one pill a relapse, (laughs) (laughs) which it Uh is, it is, especially if it's not prescribed to you and you're taking it to change the way you feel. (laughs) Yeah, go figure. So then for the next three months, like I was, you know, I was just like taking pills, but still going to meetings. And I, I even did a fifth step with my sponsor. I remember her asking me at the end, like, did you leave anything off? And I was thinking, yeah, I'm fucked up right now. <laughs> 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 um, and then shit hit the fan. And I, I, and I finally got sober for real. And that was on, um, I just two, three days ago, I celebrated 14 years. So September 13, 2008 was when I finally got sober. And that's really when life began, you know? Yeah. That yeah. is amazing. But you did say you were going to see this guy and this girl at a meeting. Mm-hmm. So the guy that you went to immediately after getting first sober prior to Klonopin friends was a guy f- from 
who was in a program. Mm-hmm. Is that? Yeah, yeah. I, so, I knew, yeah, Tulsa. Yeah, through IA. Yeah. So tell us where relationships went from there. So now you're you're engaged in your sobriety. You're enjoying aspects of sobriety, but there's a part of the recovery that keeps recurring in relationships. Hit us. Oh, Hit us, Andrea. So we all enter sobriety with a broken picker, I think. Yeah. I don't think that we come in with like high self-esteem and like a plethora of healthy relationship history. <laughs> <laughs> um, why is it not suggested that you date in your first year? Well, one, because the the high of a new relationship can, you know, can be a substitute for the drugs and the alcohol. So then if something happens, which shocking, it typically does you're at a high risk for relapse. Sure. The other reason that it's it's not suggested is because like, okay, I, I once heard it described like this way. It's kind of crass, but um, it's like the, you will date people in early sobriety that you wouldn't even spit on down the road. So yeah, so like you're you're gonna be attracted to, and people are gonna be attracted to you, like not the people that once you kind of get some recovery under your belt that you will. So the first guy that I so seven months, I I stayed single for I think for seven months, and then I started dating a guy who the age difference was more than my actual age. Yeah. Uh huh. (laughs) Also in the program, our sponsors were married. Gross. I was twenty. He was 45. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I just like came to my sense. It was like, it was like, finally, I just like woke up one day and I was like, ah, <laughs> because like, I wish I could tell you, this sounds so fucked up too. I wish I could tell you that he was like so loaded or like really good looking. And that was not the case. Like, I feel like I would feel a little bit better about myself. Like if that were the case, right? like, <laughs> but that was not the case. But like, here's the deal. Like, so I just, you know, I, I would, I just found myself in and out of relationships. And I, thankfully, I was not somebody that hopped from one to the next. I would have like significant periods of time in between, typically Mm -hmm. because it would take me so fucking long to over somebody, but I would have like a year, a year and a half, um, but what started to happen was like I saw my friends who also had broken pickers when they entered sobriety. I saw their pickers improve and I saw them get into relationships with great guys that traded, treated them the way that they deserve to be treated. And it was like for me, not only were the guys not getting any better, but m- most importantly was that my reaction, my response my state of being in each relationship was worse every time. I felt crazier than ever. I acted crazier than ever. The the breakups were harder than ever. And I couldn't figure out like what the fuck was wrong with me. Like I couldn't figure out what the hell was going Mm -hmm. on. And I felt so much shame, so much shame. So I either dated people that I met in the program or people that were active alcoholics, <laughs> just mm-hmm. track them like flies. And, um, and so then it was at seven. So I, I moved to San Francisco when I had five years. And um, so se- seven years sober is when I dated Brian number one. And um, 
it was very clear on the first date and definitely confirmed by like date two or two or three that this guy had a drinking problem. And um, he ghosts me after a month, less than a month. And I had this reaction as if my husband of 30 years had just tragically died in a plane crash. Like mm-hmm. I felt like I was going to die and I had to leave work and I had to have my mom fly out to California to take care of me. And I became mm-hmm. this like non-functioning human. And it was in that pain that I had my f- first aha where I was like, there's no way that this is about him. Mm-hmm. Like, I've known this person for less than a month and they clearly have a drinking problem. Like rationally, that doesn't make any sense. You know, it, it's the whole thing. If it's, if it's hysterical, it's historical. And then the second aha was like, oh, wow, this is the feeling, the exact same feeling that I felt when I would wake up in the middle of the night and have to sleep in my mom's bed. Mm-hmm. It was the exact same feeling of panic, of terror, of feeling like I was going to die if I didn't have that person. And so that's when I had the realization like, oh, wow, like this is rooted in childhood. Mm-hmm. And so it was about a month later, I'm at an AA meeting. I hear this woman with over 30 years of sobriety speak. And she talks about how she hit this emotional bottom at seven years sober, which is what I had at the time. And it was related to a relationship and she came to terms with the true impact that her childhood had on her. And she mentioned this book, adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. I go home, I read the book. My mind is blown. And it was like, for the first time I was seeing like all the things that I had felt and thought and did on a piece of paper. Yeah. And so I went up to her the next week. I saw her to meet. I run up to her. I'm like, Oh my God, thank you so much for your share. I'm like, you know, told her a little bit. She goes, Andrea, that's great. But I just want you to know like that just reading that book is not going to be enough. She goes, this is going to be your life's work. This is going to take you years and years and years of therapy to work through, but you can do it. And I look, I I thought years. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I'm 28. I'm basically a senior citizen. Like I need to have (laughs) yesterday or like maybe in a couple of months. And my thought was like, God, I just hope her childhood was way more fucked up than mine. And, um, and <laughs> well, Andrea, I mean, it, it, of course, reading a book is not going to fix you. They didn't have podcasts back then because just listening to a podcast well, will fix absolutely. you. <laughs> I tell people I had, I host, I host like recovery groups for my podcast community. And somebody wrote in, she was like, when, when will I be fixed? And I was like, well, you, you are. I was like, you just attended your first meeting. You're good. Um, and so I was like, I'll take a break for, from dating for a year. I've read this book and that'll be good. Enter Brian number two, nine, I'm nine years sober, the most painful six months of my entire life. I reached new depths of pain and I, I, and I clearly saw how what I was dealing with was not only like as powerful as my alcoholism, it, it was actually more powerful. And I, and I actually came to see that my alcoholism was actually just a symptom of this, this mm-hmm. core wound, which I, you know, call the disease of family dysfunction or, you know, it's complex trauma. And I, I, I finally realized that anytime I was in a relationship, I was living in a trauma response, you yeah. know? 
And so when that ended, you know, I, I was, I was willing to go to any lengths. I knew that my life depended on me fixed. Like it, this was impacting my life in the exact same way that drugs and alcohol were like, I became a non-functioning person when mm-hmm. I was in a relationship. Like I was a horrible employee. I was a horrible friend, like all in the same ways. And so that's what I did. You know, I found a therapist who really fucking gets this. And I worked with her twice a week for probably like the first year and a half. And, you know, I still work with her once a week and she saved my life. So how did your relationship with sobriety from alcohol change when now you're also dealing with the deeper child hurts and traumas? You know, it's so interesting. I feel like I now struggle in, and I don't know if it's like, maybe it is like a little bit like me being kind of like judgmental or like on my high horse a little bit, but like I find that I struggle now in AA meetings because I now I just like really view things like through this lens, mm-hmm. you know, like I just really believe that this is like the core, like for, for all of us. And, you know, you talk about like character defects and stuff like, no, those are like, just like survival mechanisms, like gone awry that have been rooted in childhood, you know? And like, yep. And part of Maladept. this, like, You can't just like pray that shit away too. Like some of it you can, but like it's fucking trauma. Mm -hmm. It's trauma. Mm -hmm. So Nate, tell me what you're thinking coming from such a a crazy childhood that you went through and, and big traumatic experiences and then spending a lot of time on your sobriety before people were talking about trauma. Yeah. Like, what are you hearing in this story? Well, yeah, I, I am arriving at many of the same insights that Andrea is describing. That really my behavior has, has those, those things that I felt so much shame about were really maladaptive responses to trauma. Mm-hmm. They were survival mechanisms, uh, which I then, being in the religious culture that I was in at the time, piled all kinds of layers of shame and guilt mm-hmm. on top of it, right? Uh, so self-compassion in that system was practically impossible. I am finding now that really uh, compassion and connection are, are the essence of recovery for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you agree, Andrea? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm hearing this listening through the ears right now of someone that would say, it sounds like you guys are just making a bunch of excuses for bad behavior, uh-huh. Yeah, which is, which is kind of like someone coming by when you got a, a tire that you're changing saying, you don't have any nuts on that. You need some nuts for that. And they're like, what you're saying that the tire's not blown. And like, no, I'm just saying you need some nuts on that. I'm not saying this isn't a problem. <laughs> just saying you can't fix it without this. Yeah that this is not about making excuses for anything. It's about understanding what's really happening in our hearts and moving towards healing that is going to bring the fullness of recovery that's about living life again, living abundantly and without fear and shame. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's where I get triggered is like when people are like, oh, just get over it. Like it's, here's the deal. Like I'm not blaming my parents and that's like not what none of this is about. And that's what I really try to portray in my podcast is like, guess what? Like our parents are just a product of their upbringing as well. Like, yes, it's this shit is just passed from generation to generation. And so we got to talk, we got to talk about when we talk about what happened to us, 
It's not so we can have like a pity party or shit on our family. It's because we mm-hmm. have to understand what the hell happened to us to make us this way. But our reco- it's not our fault that we're this way. But guess what? Like our parents can't go to therapy for us. Yeah. Like right. we have to, we have to do the work ourselves, you know? Right. Yeah. So how, how have you seen relationships change that you've been in since you started understanding that? So, about yourself. I mean, hugely. So I, you know, so I, um, I took a, a large long break from dating and, um, you know, I dipped my toe back in the pond after, I don't know, maybe after two years of kind of really working on this stuff. And I did, I noticed a huge change right away. I noticed that there were people that maybe I would have been attracted to in the past that I wasn't. Um, I also noticed that like, if somebody didn't text me back right away, like I wouldn't go into that. Um, like hypervigilant yeah. hellhole that I'm so used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really, not, I really hadn't met anybody that I really vibed with. So I had an experience back in January. So here's the thing too. I'm such a huge proponent of like, you really do need to take a break from dating. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like you, you just, you need to. Um, and, but with that being said, and I really wish that this could be the case that doesn't mean that once you start dating again, everything's just going to be like easy breezy, right? Like mm-hmm. there's work that has to be done on ourselves, but then unfortunately there's more work that can only be done as you're trying to have a relationship with somebody else, you know? Right. Right. Um, and so, but I think that we have to do that inner work first before we're in a place where we can actually do that work with another person, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. But that's, that's such a great thing to highlight that just because you find some personal healing doesn't mean you've yet applied any of those tools to the thing that was broken to begin with, but now you got the tools so you can play with it, but you're going to be doing some playing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so I met this guy in January. Um, I actually, so I was looking for sponsors actually for my podcast. So I was reaching out to people on LinkedIn that like were high up at treatment centers And so I connected with this guy and, um, obviously it wasn't like romantic right off the bat, but like, we really just like connected, like, and I just hadn't connected with a guy like in that way in a long time. And like, you know, he'd been sober for 20 years. Like he had gotten sober at a young age as well. And he was in Florida and I was in California. And so like, I just hadn't, I hadn't felt those like butterfly feelings like in a long time, but then it also was bringing up that fear of abandonment that I hadn't felt in a Mm -hmm. long time either. You know, I was like, Oh, this fucking feeling. And so it was such a totally different experience for me because in the moment when those feelings would come up in the past, I would do whatever I could to just push them away or ignore them. And in in those moments I was able to be like, Oh, this is your fear of abandonment. And this actually Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with the sky, like what you're feeling right now. And I would actually be able to like, I've struggled with the whole inner child stuff. Like it's, I feel like it's corny. I know that it's not corny, but that's just been me. But I did. I imagined like myself as a little girl and I was like, I'm not going to abandon you. Like I'm not going to abandon you. Mm -hmm. And so I would sit with it and I would allow the feelings to come and then they would pass. And then like, it would be in the moments when like, I was waiting to hear from him and then I would eventually hear from him. And I was like, oh, maybe my higher power is trying to show me that I can trust someone, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) no. So then, um, so then the red flag came, right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
And what was different is like in the past, I would just hide those red flags from anybody in my life until I was just like in excruciating amounts of pain. And then I would share it. And then I would regret that I shared it, right? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not ready to stop seeing the person. And so it did. The red flag came up and I was like, you know what? I know that this is a non-negotiable. Like I know that this is like a complete non-negotiable. And so it was like right at that point when that red flag came out, like he kind of disappeared. And honestly, like I think that he knew I was going to figure him out, like to be completely honest with you. Mm -hmm. Like I could tell. So he worked in the treatment field for like over 20 years and he really didn't know that much about adult child at all. And the other thing that I noticed is that when I would try to talk with him about it, it was very clear he didn't want to talk about it, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then when the red flag came up, it became apparent like as to why. And, um, so it was like after a week that I didn't hear from him. So I just like shot him a text. I was like, did you die? And he was like, no. And I was like, are you pulling a Brian number one sober edition on me? Cause he had listened to the podcast. So Mm -hmm. are you Brian number one sober? And so then he calls me and he's like, basically like makes up this like excuse that it's, um, it's the distance. It's that Mm -hmm. I, you know, and in that moment, what I heard was I'm not enough. I'm not good enough because if I was, then distance wouldn't matter. You know, like that's like where I went initially. And I got off the phone with him and I was really triggered. I was so triggered. It was kind of late in California and I was like trying to call somebody on the phone and I couldn't get a hold of anybody. I finally get a hold of this one guy that I kind of knew through ACA and he was just like, I was (laughs) saying, he was like, oh, well, that sounds tough. And I'm like, oh my God, you're fucking making this worse, dude. Uh, <laughs> so then finally, one of my other friends called me back and I was able to be on the phone with her. And it was like, it, it, it only took about 45 minutes. And I was able to get to the place where I was like, no, this has nothing to do with you not being enough. Mm-hmm. And a large reason I think I was able to get there was because of a huge gift that I had received a couple months prior. So a couple months prior, I go on my Instagram and I see that I have a message and like the little thing where it's like people you don't follow, like there were things from none other than Brian number one. And so I hadn't heard from this guy in, when was that? Like five years. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'll read it to you. So he, you know, he ghosted me. Um, And what it said was, hello. It was actually on my birthday that he sent it. That's weird. Hello. Hope all is well. I've been following you on Instagram and what you're doing is incredible. I'm struggling with alcoholism and I've been to 30 day treatment twice since I saw you. And this disease is why I couldn't connect with you. And I'm so sorry for that. Your message is connective, truthful, and no doubt helped many people, including me. So thank you. I wish you success and the best life has to offer. Keep your message strong and thank you again. Wow. Wow. And when he ghosted me, it was because I thought it was because of me. Mm-hmm. And it was because I was not enough. And it had nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. It was because he was an alcoholic. And so like having that gift from him, you know, I was able to, I was able to see that in this experience that it had nothing to do with me and me not being enough, you know? 
So talk about like full circle. I mean, this whole thing has just been such a crazy experience. I mean, everything, because, you know, part of hitting my bottom was like this realization that I had been selling myself short in life, especially from a career perspective. You know, I was working as a CPA at the time and um, it was like not once had I ever considered what a fulfilling career would look like for me. Like all I cared about was finding a guy and getting married. And I just realized how I was just letting whatever potential was inside of me, like go to waste. So it was like, not only did I embark on this journey to like heal the past, but I also was like, let's figure out why the fuck you were put on this earth. And then it was just like this crazy, like divinely inspired experiences of like, you know, synchronicities and just all these different things that had to occur to where the idea, idea of the podcast popped into my head, Yeah, you know? And it was like the whole time I was like working towards it. Like I could feel, I would like, I could feel it within me. Like big things are coming. Like I just felt it. But then the other part of me was like, no, like don't get your hopes up. Like you're a piece of shit. You suck. You know? Mm-hmm. Then it's like, it's just, and it did. And it's like, I launched it and it was like, I mean, two months after I, I had no experience, I've done this all on my own. Like two months after I launched, I'm on fucking Dr. Drew's podcast. Yeah, You know, yeah. like I just hit half a million downloads. Like it's just been like the craziest fucking and, experience and who, of my life. And who would have thought? Cause you're so introverted. Yeah. And quiet. So reserved. Well, tell our listeners a little bit more about how they can hear adult more child. from you about you. Hit, hit, adult, adult child. Hit me up. So we, so I, so I, here's the deal. So there is a 12 step program, adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. It's kind of sucks. Like there's some good meetings. That's you really mean. Okay. Okay. It's hard to find quality meetings. And this okay. isn't just unique to my experience, but like, yeah, okay. yeah, you know, like in AA, like we're able to like laugh at our shit, you know, right, like we're right. able to, sure. in, 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 in ACA, it's like kind of a lot of doom and gloom in a lot of meetings that I've gone to, you know? Yeah. And so I had no clue. So, so this was like a crazy part of it too. It was like it right after in between Brian number one and Brian number two, I had this reading from this intuitive, this life path reading. And I remember I, I, a lot of what she said didn't make sense. And a lot of the things that she was saying sounded so lame. Like she was saying that like my purpose was spiritual. And I was like, Oh God, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, go like, like join an ashram and like go on silent meditation. I'm like, lame. And, um, Mm -hmm. and so then when I listened to it, like a couple years later, still didn't have the idea for the podcast, but like some of what she was saying made more sense. And she was talking about my gift of communication. And then I listened to it again. And she was like, your purposes, what did she say? She was like, you will only find fulfillment when you see that your words can empower other people to change for the better. She goes, your advocation and your vocation need to be aligned. She says, it is in communication. It is creatively based. And no, she said, it will be spiritually and creatively based. And it will be in the uh, field of communication. It was like fucking crazy. One of the things she said in it, she goes, I could see you having your own sort of recovery groups. And again, I was like, lame. (laughs) (laughs) And so I started this, you know, my, my community. And so what it is, it's, it's, you know, it's recovery. It's not 12 step based. I mean, a lot of people are in 12 step groups, but it's, Um, it's just, I'm blown away at like the level of rawness and vulnerability shared. Like, I'm telling you, like, this is like, because I lead with that. Like, I don't hold anything back. And like, because I've created this space, like these people feel so comfortable 
sharing their shit. And most importantly is we laugh. Yeah. So it's like, it's wonderful because it's only like, there's no duds that are listening to my podcast. So if like people are joining this community, you know that they like at least have a sense of humor, right? Uh We're called, we're shit shows. Like that's my whole thing. It's like, we are the shit show community. And it's all about like embracing embracing the shit show, you know, and like owning this stuff. And I'm not embarrassed to tell you these things. Like it's part of me. And like, you know, it's shaped me into the person that I am today. And there's nothing shameful or embarrassing about any of this stuff, you know? And so Mm. it's just turned into this really beautiful healing community that's raw and real. But also we, I mean, every meeting, somebody laughs and somebody cries, you know? Yeah. 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 So, so listeners, if you are inspired to hear some more uh, raw conversations about shit show lifestyle, adult child, adult child podcast. And is there any web uh, website they should go to? Yeah, to they're see interested in, in the, the groups. Um, and also just know, so um, I, I will include uh, recordings of some of the groups just so people can see what they're, what they're like in there. So mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. You can find them. I just did a recent episode. It was Shit Show Saturday. That's what I call them. Um, <laughs> so you can find that those on the podcast. Um, I'm on all different various platforms. And then um, the, the groups are at patreon.com slash adult child. And on Instagram and TikTok, I'm at adult child pod. All right. Okay. Fantastic. Well, thank right. you for awesome. taking the time, Andrea. No, well, that's okay. you're you're you were here to talk, okay. so. Is good. And with that, listeners, we will be right back here on the Pirate Young Podcast. (laughs) Yes, there's my arm. I usually have to do that. Welcome back. Ah, oh, it's been so long. It's still the podcast. We're still here. Just finished our conversation with Andrea. And I was thinking, man, just earlier this week, although I think it will be published out of order. So I, anyways, you might be hearing this way later, but we talked to Roe Hunter and we had such a great conversation about family. And he was so honest about that experience. And so just a few days later to have this I love that we're having conversations about childhood pain with people who have no need to crush their parents nor protect Mm -hmm. their parents that in some ways Mm -hmm. we can, uh, I can miss out on stuff I need to see if I'm just trying to protect parents, but that also doesn't mean they have to be the villains. And I think these were two great examples of taking that seriously while not villainizing. Yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah, I, I love her straight-ahead approach, her no filter, her honesty, her humor. Uh, it sounds like she's just in the spot that she needs to be, helping a lot of people. Well, if ever there was a lady pirate, I think Andrea Ashley uh, has her full <laughs> membership card. <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, I'm, I'm the whole pirate thing. Can I bring in uh, the Mount Pleasant House for a minute, Aaron? Yes. Okay. We've been referring to it as Samson Manor. I don't know. I pulled that name out of the air a few weeks ago. I'm not sure why. I got some pushback on it in the last couple of days. 
Oh, one person saying that sounds uh, kind of pretentious. Another guy saying it sounds like an old folks home. Doesn't sound very piratey. Obviously, these people have never read Bruce a uh, Batman and know that there's an awesome Bat Cave under Manners. Oh, okay, all right. Anyways, I get what they're saying. I get it. Now I'm getting alternate suggestions for what we ought to call the place. Okay. So, what? how does this hit you? How does this hit you? The Cove. Oh, I, okay. The Cove. I like that. Yeah. The Cove. I, I mean, I grew up in a place where Pirates Cove was the only nudist beach around, and people were always getting arrested <laughs> for lewd acts there. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, what are some other suggestions and why are you sitting out of frame? I'm just like staring at an empty bed and a guitar on the wall. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. I forget that. I got to move my camera when I move my chair. Okay. There you, go. there you are. Yeah. So, so uh, what, what were some of the other, I like the cove. The cove is good. How about the lair? I like cove yeah. better. Yeah. I like cove better. Yeah. 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 Actually, those are the only two alternatives that have come my way. I'd be, I, I, Certainly, Samson Manor isn't set in stone. We can name it whatever we want to name it. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't designed the t-shirts yet, so it can be whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. So, I don't know. This This podcast might not be going out for a little while, because we have quite yeah. a few that are in the queue waiting to be uploaded. Yeah. Um, so, I, I don't know if we should be asking for suggestions, because it might just be disappointing for someone to hear yeah. this, think about it. Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, hey, if you have a great idea, always send it to us. <coughs> also, if you have questions or comments, you can send those as well. You can send all of those to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. See, look what I did. I remembered it. Oh, I am so impressed. I know. Didn't have to do the usual. Yeah. Send it to, and then I pause and like start looking at you like, quick, say what it is. So <laughs> do write to us and give us these ideas. And it's great that some of you pushed back on the Samson Manor thing and didn't like it. Some of you might yeah. like it. So we, we love hearing dissenting voices. Exactly. Uh, so and neither Aaron nor I is here to dictate anything, right? This is a collaborative effort. So let's come up with the best possible name we can together. All right. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else we got to do? No, I think that's a wrap for this one. I think that until next time, I'm Nate, and you're Aaron, and we're both your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.